All right, everybody, welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel, and we have Hap from NanoHone today. So for everyone who listens, you know I had Tanner on from Frontiersman Gear a couple weeks ago. We kind of lightly touched on sharpening, and he mentioned that NanoHone was kind of his go-to company to get stones from for sharpening. So I reached out. Hap was good enough to come on the podcast, and basically we're just going to do a bit of a deep dive into sharpening here today. So Hap, thank you very much for taking the time, my friend. Thanks for having me. So we touched on this um, a little bit before we hit record, but I would love to hear, you know, NanoHone has been around for, for five years. What was it, like, what was the impetus or what didn't you see in the market or what was the the spark that made you think I I need to do this thing because I think I can do something a little bit different or a little bit better than what's currently out there right now. Yeah, I, uh, I did it out of, uh, need. (laughs) Uh, I was working for a Japanese company and the management changed and they dropped me. I'd been with them for 16 years and they decided to uh, just go direct. And when they did that, I was out of the job. So okay. I decided really quickly that I needed to, um, you know, figure out what I was going to do next, reinvent myself sort of. And, you know, this is what I know. It's what I've learned. And, and um, so I decided to start, you know, uh, at the drawing board and designing um stone holders and accessories, sharpening stones. Um, People think about sharpening just the stone, but it really has a lot to do with how the stone is held in place physically. So if you can hold the stone really securely, then it's a lot easier easier to get leverage. It's a lot easier to to sharpen um, uniformly and um, and get good repeatability. you know, and, and those things are really important for precise sharpening. Uh, also, how you groom the surface of the stone and how you maintain it. So I designed a bunch of products uh, around, um, <clears throat> you know, those um, those starting points, how you hold the stone, how you flatten the stone, and then how you clean it because sharpening can get really dirty and messy. And I really wanted a line of products that are uh, much easier to clean and care for than anything I'd ever used before. So I started with those things and, you know, we, we came out with the first product and we improved on them a little bit and we worked uh, on, on, you know, incrementally getting better and then packaging and, and lasering, getting, you know, cleaner laser work and just getting the, the product to look more and more professional. Now, um, you know, now it finally feels like a business. We're we're shipping um, significant, you know, quantities every month, and we're getting really good feedback from the customers. But it's, you know, it's a five year thing just to kind of get it going. So maybe back up and let's kind of lay out some general <clears throat> principles, because like for a layman such as such as myself, I mean, I've seen a whetstone. But I never would have, and I guess I, I, if I thought about it, I recognized there was like coarse ones and, and fine ones, but you've obviously, the stuff you build goes into a much greater, greater detail than that. Maybe if you could give us like a bit of a primer on what are these surfaces made out of and just 
What's the general principle around having multiple different, is multiple different grits or multiple, like yeah. what would be the correct terminology there? Well, grits, that's what everybody okay. knows. Okay. So um, sharpening is really just like sanding. It's a, okay. it's a stock removal process. Um, and you're, you're removing surface material and reshaping um, in, into a new shape. So you're, you're sculpting with an abrasive. And if you need to remove a lot of material to get rid of chips, nicks, you know, uh, damage to the edge, then you have to use a much more aggressive, larger abrasive particle to do that. And then if you want to refine that to a, a really, really sharp edge that, that, you know, has very little resistance, for instance, a broadhead passing through a deer, you, you want to get it pretty sharp. And uh, to do that, you're going to use much finer abrasives, which means smaller particles. And so you go through a, a series of steps of, you know, you start out with coarse and you move down to very, very, very fine. You know, if you want to get something that's so sharp, it just, you know, cuts you to touch it and slide your finger across it, then you've got to really refine the edge, the edge angle, and you've got to, you know, use very, very uh, fine abrasive particles to do it. So that's sort of the basic primer. Where we're at now uh, in the market is we have a lot of exotic steels. We have, you know, basic, simple, high carbon steels, like a, well, O1 is even a better example of a, of a really simple, uh, high carbon steel. Um, a2 is a little more sophisticated. Um, then we have things like VG10, which are, you know, very sophisticated uh, stainless um, steels. And it's kind of important to understand the difference between high carbon steel and stainless steel. Okay. And most people don't really know they've heard of stainless. Well, stainless doesn't rust. Okay. That's kind of, you know, what most people know about stainless, but stainless actually becomes stainless at a very specific point. It, when it clears the um, chromium threshold of 12%. So when you add 12%, that's a lot. It's a big, you know, out of 100% you got to work with, if you, um, if you give over 12% of that, of that total volume to chromium, then the steel becomes stainless. And some, some stainless steels have as much as maybe even 20% chromium. And the chromium oxidizes and creates a chromium oxide envelope around the outside of the edge, if it's a knife, for instance, um, the surface, whatever that stainless steel is. And it makes it very difficult for um, um, air and water to get in there to oxidize and, and, and cause rust. Um, but for sharpening, it, it's a very important distinction. And when you have stainless steel edges that need to be sharpened, you have to start at a very coarse grit level. If you take stainless steel and put it on an 8,000 grit stone, for instance, it'll slip and slide. 
It won't okay. bite and it won't really do anything to the surface. And what you're doing is slipping and sliding on that chromium oxide layer. Okay. So what you have to do is break that chromium oxide envelope and you have to do that with a coarse abrasive. So what it means is that when you sharpen stainless steel, you always, always, always have to start with a very coarse grip. Okay. Let's say um, something um, around 400 or 200, you know, and that'll, you know, that'll scratch right through the surface. It'll break that chromium oxide layer. And then you can go through the steps and you can go all the way up to very fine stones and the fine stones will be effective until you leave the knife overnight and it reoxidizes. So you can't, the, the, the second caveat with stainless is that you, one is you have to start coarse. Two is you have to um, complete your sharpening in one session. If you go halfway and leave it for tomorrow, you're going to have to start again. At the this is fascinating. I had no idea about any of this. This is wild. Well, the, this is this is how stainless works. Now, so those two things you have to keep in mind. Start okay. coarse. You got to sharpen from start to finish all the way through with stainless. With high carbon, and that, you know high carbon because it rusts. It rusts if you look at it. You get right. it wet and... You know, it, it, it just tarnishes very quickly. And that That's A2 high. would be would be an example of a high-carbon high carbon steel. Okay, great. That would be, a, A2 would be a high-carbon, but it's a, it, it, it's, I'm not sure what the chromium content of A2 is. It has some. Um, O1 would be a really good example. That's a pretty clean, high-carbon okay. steel. Uh, um, you know, they're all alloys, which means that, you know, there, there's vanadium, chromium, tungsten, um, carbon, of course, all, you know, taking up some percentage of that 100%. Sure. And all these different alloys have become really sophisticated. And now we have cryogenic tempering and, and uh, we, you know, we have, or, or quenching really is what it is. Um, we have pretty sophisticated ways to uh, quench and temper steel. And tempering is another thing that I, I don't think most people quite understand, but it, it really means to bring back. Okay. So basically you, you quench something, you, um, I, I don't, don't want to get too far into the weeds here, Jay, but you, you quench something and it becomes very, very hard, too hard. So hard. Like it becomes brittle. Brutal. Okay. Okay. I'm with you. And so then you put it on a warm surface, like maybe 300 degrees and leave it for a few hours. And what it does is it, um, it, it softens the metal a little bit and it brings it back and it improves tensile strength. Okay. Flexibility. So it's not so brittle. And, you know, cause if something's too brittle, it just shatters and you, you don't want your broadhead to shatter for instance. Right. Um, so that's, that's a very, very short explanation of tempering. Um, I guess it, it, it's helpful also to understand a little bit about, um, you know, how and why steel gets hard okay. and what makes it hard is carbon, carbon content. And, um, it, it, imagine taking a little bag and, 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 filling it up with carbon 
and then shrinking the bag down around the carbon. And if you shrink it down really tight, it becomes just brittle and you hit it and the whole thing will shatter. Okay. But if you loosen up the bag on the outside that's holding the carbon together, then things can move around a little bit in the bag and you get, you get some resilience. And that's what you're doing basically when you, when you um, quench, you're shrinking the bag around the um, carbon on the inside. And when you anneal, you're loosening up the, the, the tension on the, uh, around all those carbon atoms that are that are being suspended in in the steel. So if you take all the carbon out, the steel becomes soft. It has a lot of tensile strength, but it doesn't have any edge holding strength. Okay. And so it's a balance. And you know, metallurgists have become really really good at um, distributing the carbon. This is called martensite distribution. They've learned how to distribute the carbon um, in the steel. So you get very consistent edges. And they've learned how to distribute all these other trace elements um, to create these alloys. So what does that mean for sharpening? Well, it means a lot for sharpening. You know, um, the other thing that you kind of have to understand or have a little bit is Rockwell hardness, okay. um, RC. And that's a, uh, a system for measuring the hardness of steel, how hard steel is. And just to give you a little idea of, you know, Rockwell 60 is pretty hard steel. Rockwell 65 is getting to that brittle point. Rockwell 68 is like almost a stamp die cutter kind of hardness. It's very, very hard. There are very few consumer tools or edges out there that are up at that, you know, that Rockwell 68 threshold. Okay. There's an awful lot of knives that are around Rockwell 58. Those are still pretty hard. And even mild, um, stainless, inexpensive knives down around 52. Okay. So for edges, we're talking about a range of about 52 to 65. All right. Realistically, there's few things above that. One of the things that is a little above that 65 range um, are called powder metals. And we see a lot of folders that have uh, powder metal technology and powder metals are really hard. So um, let's go back to abrasives for a second. We basically use for hand sharpening two, maybe three different kinds of abrasive. We use, okay. we use ceramics, which is basically aluminum oxide. And aluminum oxide can be hardened, kind of like steel, um, and, and softened um, as well. And it can, uh, it can cut Rockwell 65 steel, I wouldn't say efficiently, but it can cut it. Okay. At 66, 67, <clears throat> ceramic no longer cuts. It just slips and slides. It doesn't okay. have, it can't bite into the steel anymore. The, the, the surface is too hard. So those powder metals that are like Rockwell 67, the only thing that's going to um, sharpen those, abrade those, 
is going to be a diamond particle or CBN, cubic boron nitride. Okay. Um, CBN is a, is a man-made, um, uh, well, we have man-made diamonds. All the diamonds we use in, in sharpening are man-made, but it, it, it's a man-made particle. And it's nearly as hard as diamond, but it has a little different shape. CBN is a little rounder and diamond is a little pointier. Okay. And um, CBN is generally used for um, wheels, uh, for cutting wheels. And it's usually in, in uh, things that generate heat. So if you're using a wheel, you generate a lot of heat. And when you're hand sharpening, you really don't generate any heat. Right. So diamonds sense. work pretty well for uh, hand sharpening um, if they're presented well. Okay. And when you, you have to hold the diamond and you have to present the diamond in the surface of the stone or plate or whatever it is. So there's a few ways to hold diamonds. You can And we're talking at like, a, when you say hold, you're talking like at a microscopic level here. Like we're talking about multiple of these things across like a greater surface. We're not talking about- That's like right. A diamond. You know, you, exactly. Okay, so okay. You, you, cut, you coat, you do diamond coatings. Right, um, right. You, you do diamond fills. And <clears throat> there are really only uh, a few ways to hold diamonds efficiently. And we, we call this a binder. Okay. You know, it binds the diamonds together and presents them and holds them there for you to rub stuff on top of them and make them sharp, make things sharper, right? So uh, diamonds can be held in electroplate nickel, uh, which is mostly what you see um, out there. So if you see like a, a, a flat metal with little holes in it and it's got diamonds all over the surface, that is an electro a bed of, of nickel with the diamonds held in there with electroplating. Electroplating goes back to the 40s and 50s. It's, it's pretty well-known, understood technology. Another way to hold diamonds is in a resin binder. So it's basically inside um, glue, you know, a, okay. a glue surface. And you can spray these sometimes. There's way, there, there are different techniques for, for spraying diamonds as well. Um, ceramics, on the other hand, tend to be thicker and tend to be in a form, a block form. And ceramics are held in binders as well. And ceramics really come in in two general flavors. They're, they're sintered and non-sintered ceramics. And sintered ceramics are ceramics that have been heated to what's called the glass transition point. Okay. Where it kind of becomes a liquid. And there's a point where the material just begins to melt and flow. And, and it, just at that point, that's called the glass transition and that would be a sintered ceramic, and they're very hard. Sintered ceramics are almost as hard as diamond and CBN. They're just a little bit below it um, on the hardness scale. So, and the reason this is important is because if the steel is really hard, you're gonna to have to use an abrasive that is hard enough to dig into the steel. Right. 
So I, I, I know I've thrown a bunch of stuff out there and gotten kind of in the weeds. Sorry about that. No, this is great. This is exactly what I was hoping for. Cause I like, I, personally, I'm a bit of a cognitive learner. Like I can do something if I just watch somebody do it, but it helps me a lot more to actually understand the processes behind whatever thing it is I'm trying to learn how to do. And already I have, I have a better grasp on kind of the physical, physical structures and how they're they're interacting. Obviously, I have some follow-up questions, but this is this is helping greatly. Okay. Well, then we'll we'll, we'll carry on in this vein a little bit further. Um, so, you've got ceramic blocks, and those blocks, the non-centered ones, are usually made um, with um, something called the hot press, and it's basically a mold, and you you put the material, uh, the resin and the ceramic all mixed together in there and you press it and the mold is heated and it's not heated all the way to the glass transition point. It's a much lower temperature. So what you end up with is a block that is friable. And in the abrasives world, friability is a very key word. And it's basically the speed at which the uh, material degrades. Okay. So, as you're sharpening, you you blast through the material, and if it goes really fast, it's very friable, and if it goes really slowly, then it's not very friable. And so, you if it's not friable, you increase the life of the stone, but typically slow down the speed that it cuts at. Okay. When, when, when a stone is very friable, it tends to cut faster. Okay. And usually that means there's more air between the particles, so the stone can break down quicker. So that's, that's friability. You don't really have any friability with an electroplate, plated diamond plate. You know, once you wear through the diamonds, that's it. And you don't really wear through them very quickly, um, but you do wear through them um, and you tend to wear through them at the edges of the structures. So if that diamond plate had little circles in it, you're going to see most of the wear at the edges of the circles, and it's going to work towards the center of the space between the circles until all the diamonds go away. So very low friability. And just On to put something hand, in like a time scale, you know, a handheld diamond, if like a regular average person is going to use this for like, their hunting blade and a couple of high quality kitchen knives. What type of lifespan would a surface like that have? That all depends on the thickness of the nickel, how well it adhered to the metal surface underneath, how good the electroplating process was, size of the diamonds, distribution of the diamonds. So it's really hard to say, Okay, you know, and, 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 and how hard the metal is and how hard you're working it. All of those things come into play. Um, but, you know, di diamonds are, are really hard and, and they, they don't wear very quickly. So um, life tends to be pretty good for, a, for a, a diamond plate. But there's some other issues and diamonds that are held in electroplate nickel tend to be very scratchy. They leave deep scratches and they don't leave very consistent scratch patterns. Hmm tend to leave very deep right next to shallow next to even deeper and shallower so if you look at the scratch pattern you don't get a very consistent scratch pattern okay. think of combing your hair you know 
if you use a really rough comb, it, it doesn't leave your hair very smooth. But if you leave a real, if you use a really good, even consistent comb, it's going to leave, you know, a very clean combed surface. Right. So the ceramic, on the other hand, uh, tends to leave a much nicer surface, but it doesn't cut as fast as the diamond. It's more friable and friability has another issue for sharpening and if it, it, it dishes. So if a stone is really friable, ah. dishes, then what happens is it makes the edge rounded. It right. rounds over the edge. Is that make, making sense? No, it does. And, and, and I'm assuming too, it's going to have issues with um, like a perfectly flat surface is going to be equally in contact with the entire blade um, when sharpening. And if you had irregular friability or irregular wear patterns, you're not going to have consistent contact with gotcha. the blade as it's sharpening as well. So you're going to end up with less consistent edge, less consistent angle, and a lot slower speed because you're not contacting as many peaks in the surface of the stone. The flatter the stone is, the more peaks you're going to contact in a given pass, the faster you're going to sharpen. Okay. So okay. that's why we manufacture lapping plates. Okay. And it, it's, it, you know, it's one of the first things that people um, step back. When they look at our website, they say, oh, I can afford the stones. They're great. Oh, my God. The lapping plates, $200, $300, $500. Yeah. And it, it, it takes your breath away. It's like, hey, this is just sharpening. You know, what, what, what's going on here? Well, we're using the lapping plates to groom the surface of the stone and okay. make the stone very, very flat, very consistent. We're trying to leave the particles so that they're presented well, so that they sharpen faster, more uniformly, more consistently. And so that's why lapping, and it also cleans the metal out because if you have a good abrasive and it's sharpening well, where's that metal gonna go? Sure. No. And if it's going to go, you know, get buried, we call this loading. If it gets buried in the surface of the stone, the stone gets loaded up. The cutting speed slows down. I mean, I think of sandpaper and wood right out, right out, right out of the gate. Like you're using a, a, um, a coarse grit sandpaper and you go too long on something, it just gets filled. And then you, the, the, even though those, that rough surface is still there because you filled in all the little valleys, it might as well not be there because you're not like you say, contact exactly what's happening peaks. on a smaller scale. Right. Okay. Okay. With sharpening, smaller abrasives, smaller amounts of metal, everything on a scale down. But, but the um, what's happening is exactly like the sandpaper getting loaded it up. Okay. Um, so practically speaking, um, the thing to know about sharpening is that there are really two basic techniques for sharpening. Okay. There's leading edge and trailing edge. And most people just sort of intuitively, uh, it, this is just my anecdotal experience, but intuitively take the knife and they lead and push the edge into the stone. And they try to sharpen the knife with a leading edge technique. Okay. And a trailing edge technique is just the opposite. It's where you drag the edge over the stone 
like a barber would drag a straight edge over a leather strop. Okay. Strop is another word that's kind of gone out of our nomenclature. You know, when I ask young people, what's a strop? They have no idea. Yep. You know, I knew what a strop was when I was a little kid because barber had one hanging in the barber shop. You know? <laughs> but that's not true anymore. <laughs> Yeah, you don't you know? see them. You, you, it's familiar to me just because I was just recently talking to Tanner, but it's not something that you see you see around a whole lot. Yeah. So the word strop is a noun. It's a leather, you know, strop that hangs on the on the corner of the cabinet in the barbershop. But it's also a verb to strop and stropping. And, and that means trailing edge sharpening. As opposed to leading edge sharpening, and leading edge sharpening, uh, you can remove metal faster. If you're going forward and back, that's going to be the fastest steel removal. But when you lead, you're burying the edge into the surface of the stone, and it's very difficult to hold the angle perfectly. So you you tend to roll. Okay. As you get more, you know, resistance and the edge bites into the stone, you tend to rise up on it and you tend to roll. So leading edge is very difficult to maintain an angle. Trailing edge, on the other hand, is much easier to maintain the angle. And more importantly, it draws out the edge. So if you, if you sharpen past the edge, you're always drawing it out. And even if your angle changes a little bit, right, you're still drawing out the edge. And if you're burying into the edge, then you're always blunting it. Okay. So my advice is, unless you're a very practiced sharpener and <clears throat> you know, you're really good at, at leading and trailing, I would stick to trailing sharpening only. And you can get very, very good edges with incredible results by sharpening with a trailing edge technique. You'll get much, much sharper edges. So that, that's sort of a practical thing to, you know, as far as sharpening goes. But, you know, back to all that conversation we had earlier, you also have to have an abrasive that will cut the steel at hand, whatever that knife is, you need to know, is this knife, you know, Rockwell 60? Is this knife Rockwell 65? What's going to cut it? You know, what abrasive is, is going to actually, you know, abrade and cut away that steel. And if you've got something that's, you know, powder metal and you're trying to cut it on a ceramic and you're there for an hour, nothing's happening. Well, it's pretty clear that the, the particle in the stone is just not hard enough, sharp enough, clean enough to cut into that super hard metal. Right. That makes sense. So you, you, you have to think about, you have to give some, you know, this whole thing, some consideration. So the sort of the art of, of stone making is creating a stone that has a certain life that, you know, it's not, too friable, but then on the other hand, you want it friable enough so it can it can dig in and bite into the steel and, and cut faster. 
and you know you you want um, you want it to be cleanable. So in general, when you think about those things, centered stones don't make very much sense for sharpening. Okay. Centered stones that have been taken past that glass transition point, you you really have uh, almost no friability. They're too hard. They slip and slide. And you don't have a lot of control over those parameters that are important. And then the other thing I think is really sort of the future of sharpening and, you know, sort of where we're kind of already at now is diamond resin, where we, we put diamond in a resin binder and press it or <clears throat> extrude it or manipulate it so that we have diamond resin surfaces. And this allows us to cut those really hard steels um, and, and still have a certain degree of friability. Right. So creating a friable diamond stone is sort of thing that I've been working on in my lab now for five years. Okay. And we're starting to um, sell products now that, that are diamond resin that we make right here in our factory. And I like them for a lot of reasons. They don't, they don't load up as much. They're um, cleanable. They're not as messy. They're light. You can carry them. I can put them in shapes for curves and different kinds of, you know, very specific tools that need to be sharpened. Um, and, and I can make them out of mostly biodegradable materials or at least biofriendly materials, uh, which I, which I really like. Um, so there, there's a lot of things about diamond resin that I think are really, uh, where we're going as far as sharpening is concerned. And mostly because the steels are just so hard now that ceramics aren't, aren't, um, able to cut them. Right. Okay, so so on that note, for like an average, you know, consumer who again, we're talking like household knives and and hunting knives stuff, how should they be thinking about? Because this is kind of where my mind has been going. I, I used to be, you know, looking for a like a one stop solution, and now I realize it's more of a sharpening system. That let um, me let me walk over here. I'll be right back. Perfect. Yep. I'll be right back in front of you here. So, I'm back with you there. Perfect. Didn't really prepare products to show you today, but <laughs> it's all right. Um, so this is a um, a diamond resin strop. Okay. And it's a, it's a product that I make right here in our factory, and um, you can see on the back, it's a. a get it up here in front of the camera it's a 10 micron uh diamond resin strop and it has a qr code here that takes you to the um to the product manual for learning how to use it but basically the idea is you hold it you know like a pistol yep. and you take the um, edge i actually don't have a knife here in front of me but you, you just drag the edge over the, am I, have I got an angle yep. here that works? Totally. Right. And so you can use this wet or dry and you can put it across the sink. So you can hook this on the other side of the sink. You can sharpen 
over your sink. But the point is it's, it's diamond in a resin binder. So it'll cut hunting knives. It'll cut um, your, your, your kitchen cutlery. Um, this is a very small diamond in here. I'm starting to make them now with bigger diamonds that are a lot rougher, but this is more of a maintenance tool. This 10 micron diamond is really a small diamond. It's a okay. tenth of the thickness of a human hair. That's a tiny diamond. Yeah. yeah. So it's really meant for maintenance, just refining the edge. Right. So I don't have any major chips or physical damage, but I've got a knife that I've been using and it's just no longer, you know, razor sharp. Then a tool like this makes a lot of sense. Okay. Um, the other thing that um, I, I think is not well understood um, in sharpening is thinning. Okay. And thinning is, is very, very important to sharpening. So when you have an edge and you keep sharpening at the edge, what happens, practically speaking, is the edge tends to get more and more obtuse after more and more sharpenings. Right. Because people want to sharpen to the edge, so they keep raising the sharpening angle a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. And over time, the edge tends to uh, become blunter. So in order to make the edge more acute, you've got to remove material back here. Right. Right? And that's basically called thinning. You're making the edge thinner. And in most cases, like I would say like 95% of all the knives I've ever sharpened, thinning is necessary. Okay. You need to thin the knife to make it sharper. So one sort of rule of thumb, the first one I threw out there was trailing edge strokes or stropping. The second is sharpen behind the edge. Okay. So whenever you sharpen, if you put your concentration on the area just behind the edge and you try to remove material just behind the edge, What's going to happen? The edge is going to get thinner. Right. Right. So using a thinning technique to sharpen is often, it's almost always really, really effective. There are very few knives out there that are too thin to, um, um, you know, to, to not require thinning or so thin that they don't require thinning. What is your opinion on fixed angle sharpening devices? Because, you know, you'll see that a, a broadhead has an advertised angle of, you know, 25 degrees. And then you can go buy these kind of kits that kind of vice to the side of your desk. And they've got a variety of apparatus that kind of keep things. And then you can have this kind of fixed angle stroke. And maybe it's not as simple as like a, a one and done answer, but I'd, I'd be interested in your opinion on devices like that. Well, jigs are really important um, it, 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 for repeatability. You know, you don't see anybody in a factory um, doing a repeated operation by hand. Right. It, it just won't come out the same every time. It's going to be a little different every time. So if you want you know, repeatability, you have to use some sort of, of jig to maintain an angle. Um, 
I haven't looked at the market lately for uh, jigs for broadheads, for example. You know, so I, I can't really comment on which ones are more effective than others or easier to use. But in general, um, I do think it's really important to use um, jigs where you can. If an edge is straight um, and doesn't have a curve, then uh, it's really easy to use a jig. But if an edge has a curve to it over its length, then it becomes much more difficult to use a jig effectively. Um, some of the knife sharpeners will go around curves pretty well. Um, the basic issue with the knife sharpeners um, is they're really set up, you know, they're not thinking about that thinning and, they're, and, and removing metal, usually, not always, um, in the case of a broadhead, probably that the steel is very parallel, but in a knife, the, the, the edge tends to get thicker and thicker and thicker towards the spine. Right. And so the knife really needs, uh, thinning. So every knife's different. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's, that's, that, that's great. That helps. And another, another kind of follow-up question to that, because you see a lot of these, and I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this for sure. These little, you know, for instance, I used to have one in my, in my kitchen and it's like, a, I think it has two little carbon wheels or something like that. And you, you just put the knife in and you kind of drag it through. And now you see little devices you can take with you into the back country that will have, um, two little squares of material that are kind of create a V and it's just an ultralight version of the same thing where you can, where you can drag it through. And I like, I can kind of think through the process given what you've just telling us, but I'm assuming that would be one of the limiting factors of devices like that is that it might help you kind of touch up that the very tip of the edge, but it's not going to really do anything for you um, behind there as far as thinning goes. Well, you, you need to think about point load, the concept of point load. Okay. So something like a bicycle tire touching the ground has a very high point load. You've got a lot of mass on a tiny little point between the pavement and the tire, right? Yep. So that's yep. an example of a high point load. If you um, um, take a cinder block and put it down on the pavement. Most of the center block is contacting the pavement. That's a distributed point load. Okay. You're distributing the, 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 the weight over a much, much wider area and creating a distributed point load. So most of those sharpeners just barely touch the edge. So they have a very high point load. When you sharpen on a flat stone, a lot of the knife is contacting the stone at the same time. That's a distributed point load. And what it does is it maintains the fair curve of the edge. Okay. By distributing the point load, you're able to create the fair curve of the edge over a distance. And when you have a high point load, what happens is you tend to put a lot of pressure intermittently so the edge gets rippled. Oh, that's really interesting because what I noticed with my kitchen knives over time, and these weren't like incredibly 
but they would almost get a jagged appearance to them from yeah. pulling them through this kind of wheeled device. And they would still yeah. be sharp, but it was almost more like a microscopic serrated type sharp than like a, exactly. a clean, smooth knife edge sharp that they would have exactly. been out of the out of the box. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is really all about point load. Okay. That's really interesting. Okay. So um I guess my next question would be in regards to, is there a difference? And again, I, I can maybe foresee where we would head with this, but is there a difference between, okay, let me, let me set the stage. So I, I do backcountry hunting. So I, um, uh, I try and be as lightweight as possible. Usually go in there for 10 or 12 days at a time. I live out of my backpack. I do my best to go in there with fully prepared gear. So my knife should be sharp. My broadheads, my, my skinning knife should be sharp. My broadheads should be sharp. Um, but when you get in there, things tend to happen. Maybe you get a chance to use a broadhead or maybe you miss, um, and, and, and go into a stump or maybe, maybe the best example would be skinning an animal. And even like, let's say a large animal, because you could probably get through a, a small to medium sized deer, um, without having to touch up your knife. But when I go to do something large, like an elk, um, you're probably gonna have to stop two or three times to kind of put an edge, depending again on the hardness of the steel and stuff. Do you think there is a, a difference in the type of surfaces one would need for like the kind of home workshop and then, you know, in the back country or we, and again, we're assuming no major physical damage here. Are we really, is this really just the same process? We're just doing a, uh, a quicker version of it when we're out in the field working with them or how would you approach that type of scenario? Um, I have just developed um, a short version about this long okay. of this tool and it weighs very little. It wouldn't, it wouldn't, it's a, it's a hollow aluminum frame with a uh, um, wooden handle and the diamond resin on top. Yep. And this length is really meant for a chef in the same scenario. Okay. At 10 o'clock at night, you know, done prep all afternoon, you know, working through and, and the knife needs a touch up at 10 o'clock. So strop on it three or four times and go back to work. Right. And, and that um, is exactly what I made this tool for. And I've got a shorter version of the same tool that would be appropriate for carrying into the outback and, you know, being able to pull out, um, you know, and use in, in the middle of an animal. Perfect. Um, and, I, and I also make this diamond uh, resin out of, um, um, uh, it's, I'm using a food safe resin. Huh. So it's, it's not, not a bad thing to be, you know, getting on your knife. Cutting into an animal. Out. Yeah. Um, See, this is really interesting. One of the things that kind of Tanner turned me around on is that I've always used a disposable blade. They're really popular in the in the hunting industry. My particular brand is a is a is a Havilon, and you know those little. I'm pretty sure they're industry standard. They're like little snap on surgical blades that have kind of a little oblong, and you just put them in the little the little thing. And I've, and I've I've always used those because um, 
I've just never gotten very good at, at sharpening just because I haven't actually taken the time to invest in the skill. Um, but one, there, there's several drawbacks to those. One, you always got to be carrying spare blades with you. And two, they pose quite a danger because when you're done with those things, it's like, what do you do with them? And they're, they're, they're never like, you don't want those you things. Don't want like, leave them. You don't want to leave them out there for somebody they, to step on. A hundred percent. And then if you put them in your pack, are you, is it going to cut through something? And it, they just always present this kind of, this, this pain. And that's why I've kind of like, one of my commitments this year is to switch over to. Well, they're also really thin. Very thin. And they, they tend to. Which yeah. means you can't ride on a bone. All yeah. they're going to do is bite into a bone there. If you have an edge that has a little bit of curve right behind it, yeah. you can ride and, 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 and skive and ride out. Yep. But you can ride on the area just behind the edge. But that knife's not going to let you ride on a, on a bone surface at all. No. And the other danger is like a lot of times when I'm trying to get into the little joints and you've got to like pop these little tendons and stuff and eh, you get a little bit, you know, heavy handed with your blade sometimes because you just kind of right. snap these things apart and they will just, and then you have this like little half inch little death yeah. dagger just floating around in the animal somewhere. And the next time you reach in, you catch it in the fingertip and uh, yeah. there, there's just a bunch of reasons why I think, um, I think it takes a little bit more skill, but I do think, I think there's a pretty solid argument, um, to be using it permanent. And I also think in the last five years, the ultra weight, uh, market has just blown up and there was not, I'll be honest, there was not a lot of great, really lightweight skinning options available. I can think of a half a dozen off the top of my head that are sub two ounces, really nice. Like I think, um, I think Tanner's still using Nitro V for his skinning knives. I don't know. I think that's what he uses for the rest of his. But they're all these, what, what you had earlier called sophisticated steels. Like they're all like some type of, of blends that are really high quality. And they're right. in that like one to two ounce. Um, so it's really hard to, I, you know, you can't really make an argument for weight at that point when you're looking at like one to two ounces. Diamond resin's the way to, the way to sharpen it. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's very interesting. I, I like to say that sharpening is a cooking skill. Okay. And if you went to culinary school in Japan, you would sharpen usually twice a day, morning and night. Okay. And your teachers would look at your knives, um, you know, a couple times a day, at least in the, the first year or so. And you develop a way of sharpening your knife and it begins to dovetail with the way you use the knife. Hmm. And so as you use a knife, you begin to say, well, you know, I'd like it to be a little pointier here. I'd like it to be a little skinnier here. I'd like to have it a little, a little longer. You know, you use, I'd like to, the, my point to have a little more curve so I can shovel with it a little more, you know, Every um, every chef has a little bit different, you know, cutting technique, and their sharpening technique tends to reinforce that cutting technique, and they play off of each other. So I would say the same thing uh, about you know skinning and breaking apart animals. I'd say, you know, sharpening is is a big part of that skill. 
the better you are at sharpening, the better you're going to be at at um, at cleaning the animal. I love it. Yeah, and I do think that uh, you know you know we having moved to this disposable culture. Like I, I love cooking. It's a big part of my life, but I almost, and this might seem like a bit of a weird way to describe it, but I don't have as an intimate a connection with my knives as I, as I'm now wishing I, I did because I haven't, you know, developed those skills and tend to use more disposable quality, you know, knives than that type of quality of blade that you would need to, to kind of develop that relationship with it over time where it would, kind of demand that level of care and attention. Well, 200 years ago, your knife was your best friend. Yeah. I <laughs> love it. You know, you would have, you know, really thought a lot more about it probably, you know, given a lot more concentration to it. Well, it'd be so much harder to get another one. I think that's the other thing. Like you just, yeah. Um, okay. A couple quick things, just as we close out here in your own and this is just your own personal opinion, and let's keep it limited to um, to maybe knife to, to kitchenware. Are there particular steels that you like? Just like if we're just talking like a regular chef's knife and stuff, like that you think possess a really good blend of the kind of different elements that we've been talking about as 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 far as what goes into the different characteristics of steel. Yeah, I I like O one. You know, okay. simple wool steel. I like O one. Um, I like Japanese um, blue steel and white steel. Blue steel is a little more sophisticated, but you know they can be uh, tempered. And you know, blue steel at Rockwell sixty two is just a fabulous um, material for edges. And there's some Swedish steels that are really really good. Okay. Uh, um, and I tend to shy away from. Uh, I know one or two powder metals that are sharpenable, but I tend to shy away from things that are not sharpenable. Right. You know, if it's so hard that you can't sharpen it, then, you know, how do you deal with it? And, and it, it's a whole lot nicer to, I'd, I'd rather have something that I can just very quickly put on the stone, touch up and it's razor sharp and go right to work with it. So I, I would look for sharpenable steels. Okay. And sharpenable knife designs. Okay. Um, and then maybe for everybody listening, I'm going to put all of Nano Hones and Haps information in the show notes. But maybe if you could give people just a little bit of information about where they could follow up with you, what type of, of products you offer, how they would, just the website information and some general information about yeah. Nano Hone itself. Um. Well, you know, we're a very small company and uh, we're very customer oriented. So we really try to uh, create and products or group product groups that our customers are looking for. Um, you know, it's easy to contact me. Um, I, I try to make myself very accessible to all of our customers. Um, the diamond resin is something I'm spending a lot of time on developing. We're, we've got a few products out already in diamond resin. We're going to have a lot more going forward. Uh, we, you know, we are on Instagram and Facebook and all those kinds of things as well. Um, but I think um, the main thing is to just sharpen a little bit every day. Okay. If, if, if you can um, sharpen for 30 seconds or a minute, 
every day. In six months, you'll be a whole lot better sharpener, sharpener than you were, you know, before you started. And it's, it's really more about just making a commitment to do it, to actually sharpen. And, you know, then you, you'll, you'll get a better idea what kind of tools you like to work with. And that's, you know, what I'm trying to do is develop things that are really nice to work with. I, I want to make sharpening fun. I, I don't want to make it a chore. I, I, you know, hey, I got some time here. I'm going to pull out my stones and sharpen. You know, that, I, I want people to you know, feel like it's fun to do. Well, and I think the, I can attest to the customer service. I only reached out a week ago and somebody got back to me with it within the day. Um, and we were able to set this up, which was, which was great. And something you will notice when you go to the website is like the immediate care and attention to detail. And I think there's a big push lately, especially for like, you know, locally made smaller companies where you know, who's making the stuff, you know, what went into, to making this stuff. I think there's a lot of there's always big box box options out there for things, but that was one of the things that impressed me right away, which is why I chose to um, to reach out because I do. I think that's a good thing that we're transitioning. I think it's a good thing that we're putting the priority. I mean, I like to say you vote with your money, and it's like I I want to support businesses that have you know similar values and cares to myself. So yeah, I think I you've done a very good job in communicating that because right away it was just like the the commitment to craftsmanship really comes through on the website and just some really unique stuff. And it was like a different take on it. Like there wasn't, um, I just thought it was a more intelligent approach even just to sharpening itself because everybody, there was, everybody's always trying to sell this like quick fix. And when you go there, there's not a whole, that's not what leaps off the page. It's a more thoughtful approach to sharpening in general, which is what I found. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really appreciate that. I'm glad that came through. Yeah. Um, Okay, like I said, I'll put all Haps and Nanohones information in in the show notes. Hap, again, this was a delight, my friend. That was like more than I thought I was going to learn this morning about about sharpening. So um, uh, maybe we'll do a round two if we get some follow up questions, and maybe I can ship you some broadheads, and we'll do a bit of a like a practical demonstration for some yeah, of the people on some of the weird edges. Sure, absolutely. Okay. that would be fun. Thank. Have you. yourself a great day. Thanks a lot for your time, Hap. All right, you all too. Right. Bye bye. Cheers. Well, there you go, everyone. That was our interview with Hap from NanoHone. If you could do me a favor and like, comment, share, or subscribe, that would be greatly appreciated. And as always, thanks for tuning in.